0: So we are in uh, the third week of Lent. So this has nothing to do with the dryer vent in your house. This is actually a thing, and uh, we're easing you slowly into that. We're about halfway through, sort of-ish. And today our texts uh, come to us from Exodus 17 and John 4. And again, the power of this really is that there are hundreds of millions of believers around the world who are listening to the gospel today presented from these texts. And so we're going to find our way into that truth, but it's just fun to know that you're on the trail with a bunch of other people who are doing the same thing. Imagine the amount of contexts uh, are, are, are read into this scripture and are narrated through the truth of God through the Old Testament and the New Testament and if you imagine the church around the world. The reality is very few churches around the world do it the way we do it, and yet that same truth sustains. It's kind of a brain breaker. It's kind of, a, it's kind of a, an insane thought to think that the same ancient writing recorded by eyewitnesses from all those years ago can speak to all these contexts. But anyway, this is what we hold when we hold the scriptures. So when was the last time you were really thirsty? I bet we got some stories. I don't mean just like, man, I could use a Gatorade, but I mean like really, like life-threatening situation. I don't remember many situations that would fit that bill other than perhaps the marathon, 2015 marathon in Austin, maybe the... 2005 marathon in Chicago. Um, but in terms of being, you know, dying of thirst, like my kids like to say when we're on the way to the mall, they forgot to pack their water bottle because that's such a long drive, you know. Anybody else grew up in a house with no water bottles? Think about it. My countertop is Water Bottle City. That's all we have is water bottles. And it's nothing to spend $65 on a new water bottle because it's, it'll keep it colder. Apparently dehydration is a, more of a thing back then than it was back then. I don't ever remember washing a water bottle. Anyway... Dying of thirst is this idea that we throw this around and it almost loses its meaning, but there is such a thing, right? But I don't think I have ever been to that place of craving water, at least not in a life-threatening way, at least not physically, okay? I'm going to give you a little hint where we're going. In the scriptures, thirst describes a particular state of being in which humanity is probably most perfectly positioned to experience God, Thirst describes that perfect place where people are most prepared to encounter God. Hunger and thirst are essential gauges. They feed us data. They tell us that what we're doing is not enough. We've got to go somewhere else, get something different, because what we're doing right now is leaving something out. So thirst is this interesting theological category in Scripture. We have to go get something that we currently are not getting. That's the idea, right? And as you know, thirst is not just a physical state of being. Spiritual thirst is very much a thing. Spiritual thirst is a deal. In fact, hunger and thirst, in fact, those who hunger and thirst in Matthew 5 get a special beatified category. Jesus would say those who hunger and thirst for righteousness will be satisfied, right? So physical and spiritual thirst are very much a reality. In fact, Jesus speaks to both. What do I mean by this? No matter what people say, and follow with me if you can't hear, our theology is always done from below, meaning... Our first point of reference being the way we are in the world, the way we inhabit our body, the way we know things, is where all good theology begins. What does this mean? When we're well fed and well provided for, our natural assumption is that God is good and that he loves and approves of us. When all of our needs are met, this might be one of the reasons why the church in the Western world is so impotent and powerless. Because when all of our needs are met, we're all good. God's good. Apparently what we're doing is working, right? Think about the converse of that. He's proud of us, right? But think about those times of need. When we are in need, when we are thirsty, and when hunger and thirst reach a critical level, we almost always conclude that God has abandoned us. Now, I'm not just talking about us. I'm talking about believers throughout all times, okay? It's as if we've done something wrong, right? What have we done? What did we do? You see, all theology begins from our experience, at least. People will tell you, and I had profs in seminary that told me, no, no, my theology begins from Scripture. Yeah, but your experience of Scripture begins from your, your epistemology, your center of knowing. It all begins from what we can know from below. Why does this matter? Here's why it matters. Because thirst shapes our thinking, and it shapes our theology. Thirst moves us. It compels us. It motivates us to move in new directions because if we don't solve it, we know the expiration is coming, right? Now, you know that I think about faith as a lifelong journey. We all do, I think. Simple faith, the faith that we begin our journey in Christ with, tells us that God is with me when my needs are met, okay? But good theology pushes us to admit that God is always with us, no exceptions, No seasons of your life does God pull away and say you're on your own now. Good theology says that. And interestingly, like infants who cry when they have a need, right? Because that's all babies really come prepared to do is just raise Cain, okay? Like when they cry when they have a need, they're only comforted when their need is met. That's how we begin our faith journey, the very same way. God loves me when my belly is full and my diaper is dry. But what about when it isn't? Like any good parent, we hope our child eventually develops a better, more nuanced understanding of our love for them, right? As our kids develop, we know that days are coming where they're going to experience real want and real need. It's coming. And those seasons of want and need are designed to shape their souls, and good parents don't intervene there. They let that kind of bubble up because that thirst and that craving will make pursuers out of our kids, not just dependents. In a similar way, this is the path that faith follows, okay? Here's the deal with simplistic faith. It serves a purpose in the beginning. But like the hydrogen booster that launches the space shuttle out of the Earth's gravitational orbit, you know the big red tank that breaks away predictably at the right time and then the shuttle goes on, it's designed to be jettisoned. Simple faith only gets us so far. It's designed to break away. Rigid, binary, black and white views of God's blessing and who he approves of is designed to crumble over time because that nursery view, that Swedish Jesus-on-the-wall view of life is never designed to handle the realities of our life because I know things are coming and you know things are coming that simply do not fit that picture where, when our diaper's dry and our belly's full, God is good, and when it's not, we wonder, okay? Let me just tell you this. Every form of legalism and fundamentalism in the world is born of this simple equation. God smiles when I perform. And so if he stops smiling and I'm hungry and thirsty and things, my needs are not met, I just have to perform a little harder. I got to dance a little harder. I got to praise a little louder. I got to give a little more. I got to earn it, earn it, earn it. And every bad form of theology that conquers peoples and destroys cultures and destroys the globe and ruins people's souls under the weight of the fundamentalist heft of that, every single one of them is born of that assumption. God smiles when I dance and when he does when he's not smiling apparently he's mad at me All we have to do is intensify our religious activities when things go sideways right Think about this idea I got to do something so God comes back to me Let me ask you this where is God not That's a terrible question Mom if you're listening to this podcast she's an English prof Don't judge me on that sentence Where is God not already what season of your life is he not already near you at every exhale and every inhale? This idea that, you know, how's your walk going? Well, it's not so great because I've been, you know, I've, I've, sort of, I've sort of fallen away. How do you fall away from the presence of God who plucked you from death? It's an interesting concept. What am I picking at? Bad theology. Let me make this as clear as I can, and this is politically as correct as I can be. That's crappy theology. We can edit that, right, Trey? Got yeah, right. And it breeds nothing but legalism and religious performance, and that's what I think the pleasure of speaking the word to a people every Sunday, what are we chipping away at? Bad thinking about God, bad assumptions about God's approval, bad assumptions about how God's love works. Now, if this describes the way you look at God, be kind to yourself and know that every Christian always in all places has struggled with this, so it's not just you. It's like we're trying to back a Winnebago into a matchbox. The thinking of God and how he works doesn't exactly fit, and so we do the best we can. You get the idea? The Winnebago and the matchbox. Man, I worked on that, (laughs) (sighs) y'all. That came to me at radio. I thought that was brilliant. Nobody laughed. Probably scaring people. It's time that we figure out God's jump shot, right, as it relates to how our lives overlap with his. Where am I going? I'm setting us up for today's reading. I don't often teach from the Old Testament. I'm in love with the Gospels. But the beauty of following the lectionary is it forces us to do diligence to the whole witness of God. And so this passage in Exodus 17 really captured my imagination, and we're going to read it in the message today, because I think it says it really well. Let me just read this to us. Now, hang on, look at me. Don't look at the screen. Don't look at the screen. Look at me. This is, this, I'm just going to drop you right in the middle of the story of Israel after they have left Egypt and they're trying to figure out how to get to the promised land. That's where we drop in the story, Okay. Verse 1, Exodus 17, directed by God, the whole company of Israel moved on by stages from the wilderness of sin. Interesting name. They set camp at Rephidim, I don't know how to pronounce that, that's good enough, and there wasn't a drop of water for the people to drink. The people took Moses to task God, or not God, give us water to drink. But Moses said, why pester me? Why are you testing God? But the people were thirsty for water there. They complained to Moses, Why did you take us from Egypt and drag us out here with our children and animals to die of thirst? Moses cried out in prayer to God, What can I do with these people? Any minute now, they're going to kill me. A little drama there. I kind of know what that's like. Verse five God said to Moses, Go on out ahead of the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel. Take the staff that you use to strike the Nile and go. I'm going to be present before you. Now, notice that. I'm going to be present before you there on the rock at Horeb. You are to strike the rock and water will gush out of it and the people will drink. Moses did what he said with the elders of Israel right there watching. He named that place Massah or testing place and Meribah, the quarreling, because of the quarreling of the Israelites and because of their testing of God when they said, is God here with us or not? Very briefly, let's pray. Holy Spirit, Quicken our minds and our hearts to accept your word today. Let your word be a mirror. Let it narrate our lives again. In your name we pray. Amen. So many of you are familiar with the story. Moses strikes the rock, and if you know the whole story, later on in Numbers, it talks about this being the reason why Moses didn't get to go into the promised land. For whatever reason, it's it's sort of a nuanced telling of the same account. At any rate, the people are dying of thirst. God says, hit the rock with a stick, and water comes out of the rock. A couple of things, a couple of thoughts. The people aren't the only ones learning here. Listen to me, how good of a leader is Moses if he looks at the people literally dying of thirst and says, why are you pestering me with this? Well, because we're dying, and you're our leader. So fascinating. Listen, it's very unhelpful to look at these biblical uh, protagonists and the people that figure prominently in our faith. It's very unhelpful to look at them as if they've always got it all figured out. Moses is learning to lead. These people come and say, it's critical, we're going to die without water. Moses says, what's that to me, right? Who's binging on Netflix or something, didn't want to be bothered. Here's what I've learned. Listen, if you're a leader in the room in any space, listen to me clearly. This is for free, nothing to do with today's message. Leaders are the gift of God to save wandering people. They really are. But complaining people are God's gift to leaders to save their souls. Leaders don't want to hear this. But Moses is becoming something different. The people have need, and Moses is learning to, because here's what's interesting. The, the very last part of this verse says something very interesting that catches God's attention in a way that it doesn't catch Moses's. So, first of all, the people, uh, Moses, or, um, yeah, the people aren't the only ones learning. Moses is becoming a leader. Second of all, remember God had miraculously provided for the needs of these people in the desert. Just one chapter prior, He provided quail and manna from heaven to sustain them where there was no sustenance. They saw God part the Red Sea with their own eyes in the previous chapter. God sent quail and manna. Think about this. These guys knew that God had been faithful, but just like us, they've got very short memory. They are becoming God's people. Moses is becoming a leader. They are becoming God's people. And if you can hear this without tarring and feathering me, God is becoming father. God is becoming father to these people. This may have felt like a bother to Moses, but that last question, is God here with us or not, puts something into motion. It always does in the ears of God. There's a framework to these stories of the Old Testament. It's a kind of matrix that sustains them all. God is teaching them to depend on him, not on themselves. And learning tends to hover around this central question. Where are you, God? Where can we find you now? Where are you? It's a little bit of a cycle. Here's how it starts. Legitimate need gives birth to real complaint. But what's interesting is that complaint in the ears of God is just a poorly worded question conceived in fear, to which the answer always is, I am your provider. To Moses, it sounds like quarreling and complaint. To God, it sounds like the need to go to the next level of dependence on him. Are you here is the primal question. Why am I saying this? Because I wonder if you move the leaves of your own soul back, and if you dug deep enough, if you might not find that same question. God, are you here? It's a bit of a cycle. Legitimate need gives birth to complaint. Then supernatural provision through unconventional means, usually gives birth to total amnesia. God comes through, water flows out of a rock, and they forget. Little birds from heaven fall down and feed a million people. It's unbelievable, and every day this happens. in manna, who nobody can describe in English, it's like flakes or wafers or I don't know what. It's grain-free, I'm reasonably sure, but it, this stuff <laughs> appears to these gluten-suffering Israelites with shoes that don't wear out in the sun-scorched area, and the, somehow it all works. Supernatural provision delivered through unconventional means gives birth to complete amnesia. And it's moving us in a direction. For the sake of time, I'll summarize many years of history for you. Here it goes. This little cycle, complaint, provision, amnesia, complaint, provision, amnesia, goes on and on until God changes the game. We're in Exodus 17. Listen, by Exodus 32 and 33, God no longer plays the game this way. In today's text, he tells Moses, hit the rock that I'm standing on. Come find me. I'll be there. Hit that rock. That's how Moses knows which rock to hit. But by Exodus 32 and 33, God says, here's how it's going to work. You're going to have to find where I just was because you can no longer see me from the front. Translation, you get to look at my backside. That's how the the message, message translates it. You know the story where God comes by and it's earthquake and it's thunder and it's fire and Moses is hidden in the cleft of a rock and he gets to see where God just was, but he no longer gets to see God face to face. Here's what I wanna suggest. This isn't God growing tired of his people. This is God becoming father and us becoming children. This is God maturing his people. Eventually, Moses will stay a little too long on Mount Sinai when he goes up to get the tablets, and what do the people do? They permanently accept this assumption in their heart that God is apparently not near us, and so we're going to handle it. We're going to make something we can worship, and it's going to look like the junk from Egypt, but at least we can associate with this little golden calf because apparently God has withdrawn completely. How many days was Moses on on the mountain? Not very long, but they permanently just poured it in dry concrete, this assumption that God apparently is not to be found by us. This is critical. When we internalize the fear that God is no longer with us or for us, we slam everything into reverse, and what do we do? We go back. We stop forward motion, we put it in reverse, and we go back, and we reach back for whatever used to work. Now listen to me. I'm describing all the Christian movement through all time. When God can no longer be found, we go backwards. We wanna go back to where we found him last, and we chase around this God who was just here but no longer is, and we look for what we can find, And we build institutions around that. We reach back. For some of us, it's places. For some of us, it's key people. For some of us, it's moments where God provided. But here's the thing. God never agreed to dwell in predictable places. He's going somewhere, and we are becoming something as we follow. God never promised to be found in one place always, at least not forever, and definitely not exclusively. In the wilderness, God could be found in the tent of meeting. It was a little tent that traveled within the encampment of the Hebrews. During the time of the judges, God lived in a tent at Shiloh where the Ark of the Covenant was kept. Later, there was a temple that Solomon built and that's where you would find God. But when the Babylonians destroyed that, God's people were once again asking the primal ancient question, where is God now? Where is God now and how can I find him? When Solomon's temple is destroyed, before it's rebuilt, the people wonder again, how do we do it? To this very day, We're asking that question. And this brings us right up to our gospel text for today. The controversy, listen, about where to find God was white hot in the days of Jesus. It was burning white hot. The Jews had their assumption, the Samaritans had their assumption, and they were literally at cultural war over where can God be found. It's the basic difference that divides the Jews from the Samaritans. So let's look at John 4. Now, I'm not going to read all of it because there's a bunch of verses here. Every Sunday morning when Trey says, What's the text for today? I grimace because I think he's probably thinking I'm going to read them all. We're going to be here for hours. But it's the story of the Samaritan woman at the well. You know the story, John 4. It immediately follows John 3, where we were last week. Jesus goes through the land of Samaria instead of going around it like all the other Jews would do. He bumps into a woman who at high noon is drawing water from a well, Jacob's well, a well that sustained people for many, many years. Jesus shows up thirsty and says, hey, hook me up. And she says, you don't even have a bucket. Jesus says, if you knew who you were talking to, you would ask me for living water. And she says, what's this living water? you hear the, what? Living water, right? We don't know exactly everything that's going on. Don't believe people who tell you exactly what it all means. But here's what we know. This woman lived in controversy and had some failed relationships. And that's probably why she's getting water at the hottest time of day. She's out there at noon so she doesn't have to face the people who constantly judge and shame her. And isn't it so amazing that this is when Jesus shows up? The disciples go back to pick up some Chick-fil-A because everybody knows that's all they sell in heaven. You know the news? They're, they opened finally Chick-fil-A in heaven. They opened it on Sunday. Sorry. I think that was a Babylon Bee story I read. Anyway. You know the whole exchange, but what's the, what's the subtext to this argument? She basically says, living water, what are you talking about? Jesus says, here's the thing. You guys dip out of this well, but there is living water from which if you drink this, you will never thirst again. And she wisely says, I want this. I want this. She says, I'm going to go tell my husband. Jesus says, you don't have a husband. She, Actually, this is your fifth, and you're not even married to him. The whole deal. But it comes down to this question. She says, well, we worship at Mount Gerizim. And the Jews worship in Jerusalem. And what does Jesus essentially say? He says, "Nope. the new locus of worship, the new place to find God, the place to reliably encounter Jesus is wherever you are desperate and thirsty and buried and outside and pushed to the margin. That's where you find Jesus. See, he used to be found in temples and synagogues and places where we could put our hands on. And now he's found by thirsty outside people. We could take this story a million directions. It's one of my favorites. It's probably in the top three for me. For example, we could talk about Jesus' blatant rejection of sexism. We could talk about his repudiation of xenophobia. We could talk about his embrace of the outsider. We We could even talk about how he's rebuking his disciples for thinking that this newly minted kingdom is nothing but a nationalist movement. We could talk about all of that. We could talk about his sense of being Clean before the law, because when a a Jew, when a rabbi associates with a Samaritan and has conversation with a Samaritan woman, he's unclean for 10 days. He can't go back into the temple. We could talk about all of that, but here's the question I wanna tease out of this. Jesus gives a definitive answer to this question. Where even is God to be found now? Where do I go? How can I get my hands around? Where is God? And where is he not You know, it's fascinating that Jesus spent about three days in this little town. More controversial even still that he stops at a well to have a drink with a Samaritan woman is the fact that he goes home with her for three days, and the disciples are in a school, a deconstructive school of their own assumptions because for three days they're looking over their shoulders in hostile territory because they are in no man's land because they're practicing Jews. And it took three days to teach these hard-headed men that there is no off-limits. There is no out of bounds. Where can the presence of God be found? Wherever people are thirsty. Here's how you interpret this passage. It's no longer about which mountain to worship on or which temple we rely on to find the presence of God. Jesus is claiming that these words, access denied, will never pop up on the screen of anyone seeking truth ever again. And this is absolutely earth shattering for the people around Jesus. No matter what tribe, no matter what sex, no matter what sins have been committed, no matter uh, what you're addicted to, no matter the things you've done, if any of that could have ruled anyone out, this nameless woman from Samaria would have been ruled out. She would have been ruled out, and it would have been her fault, and nobody would have even noticed. But she wasn't, was she? This little lesson, who gets to enjoy the access of Jesus, takes three days to teach the disciples. If the Old Testament teaches us anything, it's this, that God is on the move. He won't stay put for very long, and he's moving where? Towards us, towards all of us. Our thirst and our hunger pains will drive us back to an ever-deepening awareness of God's nearness to us. And the question before us and every believing generation of all times is this, will we follow? Can we learn to adapt if we don't, then here's the best we can do. The best we can do is show up to where he just was. And that's never gonna satisfy your thirst and your hunger for God. It's always, almost, gonna be satisfying, but it will always leave you hungry, like salad bar. That's not in the notes. I'm not really that dumb. I just, I don't know why I said that. I looked at Haskins and I thought salad bar. Sorry, Drew. This is what ADD looks like in front of people. Sorry it will always, almost be so satisfying to show up where Jesus just was. But that's not our invitation, is it? Drinking from Jacob's well is better than dying of thirst, but it is nothing like living water, like today's Samaritan woman points out. Here's the deal. You can't read John 4 apart from John 3. Jesus just got through saying For God so loved the entire world that he gave everything to have it back. And the very first thing he does is go where all the disciples were hoping he wouldn't. And he did exactly what everyone thought he couldn't. And he did it because this is the natural outworking of that truth, right? For God so loved the world. Temples, tabernacles, holy mountains no longer house God's spirit. Listen to me. Thirst and hunger is where God lives where human souls crave because somehow the signature in their soul drives them home and they don't know why they're looking where they're looking but somehow they're looking for something. Think about what this woman was looking for. What possesses someone to be married five times? I, I, don't, I mean, no judgment in this room if you've been married five times. But what, what can we assume? They're looking for something, aren't they? They're looking for something. This is where God lives. Where human souls say, it's not enough. I need more looking for something that I can't get my hands on. God can be found where people are thirsty and where people are seeking. You see, here's the truth that comes to us from Exodus 17, retold in John 4. Thirst comes from God. It's God's invitation to provide. It drives us home. Our cravings will eventually take us back to Jesus. Here's why I'm not personally alarmed when people go on pursuit of truth because I know true pursuit of truth will settle for nothing less than real truth. I I could recount multiple conversations with you where good friends have advised other friends, don't read that. That's gonna mess you up. Don't look there. There's nothing to be found there. Only read these things. Only look within this little narrow sliver of Western civilization and evangelical theology because if you read out, listen, Seekers seek and seekers find. And what's fascinating to me is the people who actually find Jesus are the ones who will have nothing less than something that fills. Our cravings, here's, my, here's my, my suggestion to us today. Our cravings were put there by God for a reason because it gets you up at night and it wakes you up in the morning and you know you will have nothing less than something that fills that hole that's put there by God. And here's the message of grace today for us. Listen, it almost doesn't matter what kind of thirst you're dealing with. Any thirst will do. For some of us, it's relational. Some of us have been married for 30 years and we're still not allowing ourselves to be loved because we're so broken inside and we're so condemned inside and we self-judge so constantly that we could never let ourselves be loved. We're thirsty, we're craving, we're hungering. Some of us feel this by Material possessions. And we just think if we get that next thing, then it's gonna fill us. And the amazing thing is when you sign the line and you bring that car home, immediately, what are you thinking of? New wheels, tinted windows, something else. It's always something else. It's always something else. We're craving, we're thirsting, we're being driven after something. I don't know what that is for you today. But it almost doesn't matter what it is. God can use it because it will drive you home if you get curious about what's at the bottom of that thing, if you actually get to the bottom of it, it can lead you back to the arms of God. See, people aren't broken because they're dumb. Hear me. People aren't lost because they're dumb. People aren't addicted because they're not smart. People are addicted and they're lost and they're broken and they're damaging themselves because they are hungry and they thirst for something to fill and God will use that. Nicodemus never found what he was looking for. I don't think Bono did either. But this nameless nobody from nowhere, this nameless nobody from nowhere finds Jesus and her whole town experiences a revival, and an encounter with God that we don't even have, it's not even written down. We don't even know what happened. All we know that John says many believed. Many of the wrong people in the wrong town believed. This nameless nobody from nowhere finds God because she was thirsty and God will always provide where we are thirsty. If she can find life, I think we can too. Now listen to me. Only you know what you're dealing with. I know what I crave. I know what I'm looking for. I know it because the moment I grab that next thing, it doesn't fulfill it. I know it. I know what it is. And rather than feel shame for where you're struggling and shame for where you're broken and and feeling judgment from where you're struggling, here's what I want you to think about. Accept that thirst and hunger and say, God, help me find you through this Lead me back to you through this. Because no matter what you're craving and what your emptiness might be or what you're trying to medicate at the bottom of that thing is a signature from God and it will draw you home. Are you thirsty today? You know, it's funny. I'm, I'm never thirsty in here. I'm dying of thirst right now. I'm afraid to drink from that water bottle because there's essential oils in there. No, no oils in there? Okay. You never know what sort of weird colloidal silver or whatever kicking around in water balls at our house. I'm just being funny, you know. You know, she lives with me. We've been at this for 23 years, so we'll get we'll get past it today, y'all. We're gonna be okay. (laughs) But hear me. What are you craving today? What are you thirsty for? Get real quiet with that. Sit real honestly with that before God. And my guess is He's got an answer for that. Because here's the bottom line: I'm tired of running to where God just was. I'm so tired of showing up to where He just passed through. You know what we call that? We call that religion. And I'm so tired of that. I'd rather teach high school or college or something else. If that's, if that's all I get is to show up where God just was, I'm done. I'm done. I don't want to lead there. I want to go where God's going next. How about you? How about you? Stand to your feet. Band, join me.